At least 100 million people around the world have been forced to flee their homes. That is one in every 100 people globally. Among them are nearly 27.1 million refugees, around half of whom are under the age of 18. There are also millions of stateless people who have been denied a nationality and lack access to basic rights such as education, healthcare, employment and freedom of movement. As these numbers continue to grow, we face a global crisis that cannot be ignored. Today, I'm speaking to Gillian Triggs. Gillian is the United Nations Assistant Secretary General and Assistant High Commissioner for Protection with United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR. She oversees UNHCR's protection work in support of millions of refugees and asylum seekers and those who have been forcibly displaced within their own country and are stateless. She's also a public international lawyer who has held a number of appointments in service to human rights and the refugee cause, including as president of the Australian Human Rights Commission. And in 2021, Gillian was awarded a Ruth Bader Ginsburg Inaugural Medal of Honor in recognition of her fight for the rule of law and gender equality. Thank you so much, Gillian, for joining me today. Really looking forward to having this conversation with you. Gillian, listening to these statistics, and I just quoted um, 100 million people around the world have been forced to flee their, their homes. And also knowing what we are facing right now, um, especially with the war in Ukraine, and the list goes on. Gillian, what are some of the biggest issues and risks you think we are facing in 2022 and beyond with regards to the global refugee crisis? So I think the biggest issue is really conflict and the lack of, of, of ability of governments to deal with root causes, extreme poverty, discrimination, largely ethnic violence. But then, of course, we see almost a traditional war going on between Ukraine and Russia. We need stronger world governance to manage these situations. And we need to deal with all the consequences of climate change. So those are the big issues. The risks are that we will keep absorbing these numbers and doing nothing more than we've done in the past. And I think, I think what we need is, is a, a huge shakeup of how we, how we respond to these questions and, and these risks globally. Absolutely, Gillian. I mean, you talked about the root causes, Gillian, and then, you know, there's the root causes and then there's what the data is telling us. You know, when you look at that, when you look at the data, and I know that recently, you know, the data has kind of shot up from what it was to, to touching 100 million. And like you said, there's so much beneath the data. What does that make you think, Gillian, about the long-term challenges that refugees face? Well, exactly. And that is why we expect that these numbers will continue to rise unless we have a dramatic change, unless governments invest not millions or billions, but trillions in what you might broadly describe as, as development funding. We've got to stabilise populations where they are. Of course, boundaries must remain open for people to claim asylum. But at the same time, we have to address those root causes. We need trillions of investment. And the risk is that we will have growing numbers of people who are fleeing persecution, danger, 
discrimination, poverty. And we will simply, the, the, the problem will simply compound itself and keep on compounding over the years. And uh, we cannot, um, to use the language of the UN and the Secretary General, we cannot leave these people behind. If we do, we simply increase conflict, we increase disease, uh, we increase burdens on resources, and we increase the threats to the planet and, and to the environment we live in. So we have huge problems that we know more about now than ever before. And I think we have to take advantage of the data, of the scientific knowledge, but also we have to work very hard on the political will to change to change this. And these are, these are enormous questions, and we can all take the bite-sized bits of it, which I think many, many of us across the world are doing. But we really need the power of, of global authorities and institutions to, to drive the political will to ensure that the, that the trillions are going into this problem and, and the ramifications of the movement of people rather than into increased arms, increased fighting between countries on cybersecurity. They're talking of trillions and trillions of dollars going into these issues, which are not solving the problems. Yeah, yeah. Gillian, you've kind of, you know, reminded us all of the long-term effects of that we are facing as a global community as a result of the displacement crisis. That makes me think, and I know our listeners will would, would have wanted to have asked you this question, but I'll ask it on their behalf, is what do you see the role of countries globally? We know 80% of the countries, apparently, Gillian, who take refugees are low to middle income countries. I mean, how would you respond to those countries who say that, you know, they should prioritize their domestic efforts and this is not a, not a priority? I know you do encounter that. Well, you're quite right. I mean, and that is what the Global Compact on Refugees was designed to respond to. In other words, we have to have a global response of equitable sharing of responsibilities so that countries like the United Kingdom, Australia and others trying to shift or push the burden back to the poorest countries in the world is not a solution and it never will be. So I think my answer to your question of, you know, when we have rising inflation, we have poverty levels rising, inequality rising globally, many national governments are going to say, look, we've got enough problems to worry about without taking on the burdens of, of, of millions of refugees. We simply can't do it. We can manage our own national environment. We can't look further. And in the meantime, we'll push back at our borders and we'll make other poor countries handle the problem. The answer must lie in the reality that globally we are so interconnected that you absolutely cannot take that, that internal national perspective. I think we've seen this in particular in the context of COVID. These are global problems and we cannot deal with them unilaterally. But the systemic problem that your question raises is we are a globe that has 193 individual countries and they have, some of them, democratic systems, others autocratic and totalitarian systems, but they will all be stru struggling with the same problem, that their electorates or the peoples that they represent will ask for solution to the national problems, not solutions to the international problems. So we've got a tension. And I think all we can do is try to ensure that people are sufficiently well informed about the, this interconnected nature of, of, the, of the globe, that they will understand why their governments have to accept that they must also accept a responsibility for the global movement of people. And that means investment and back to root causes again. So we go a bit around in circles, but I think one of the few 
positive lessons from COVID is that we contaminate each other. And when we don't deal with crime gangs in El Salvador or Guatemala or Honduras or Nicaragua, then inevitably we have movements of people up to safety in in Mexico or across into the United States, Canada and other parts of the world. We all have to understand that these issues are, are interconnected. Jillian, I want to come back to some of the personal challenges that that poses that these sort of you know entrenched issues pose for you. But let me let let's just play a little bit at the institutional level. You know, when you come across this sort of tension, as you said, between domestic priorities and and supporting global efforts, how do you, Jillian, sort of get people to see beyond the myths and biases that often put barriers up? to this global challenge. So what I'm thinking about, Gillian, is that, you know, we see media and governments politicize this crisis to the point of inaction. You know, how do you then overcome that or help them overcome that and see beyond that sort of politicization? I think you're right. I mean, that that really is the challenge of advocacy and moving hearts and minds. In other words, if I were to resort to being the international lawyer and tell you all about, you know, article one of the refugee convention, I will bring nobody with me. We find that it's a combination of accurate data. We must get our data right. So if we say 100 million, it must be accurate. If we say that only 16% of primary school children among refugees are going to school, we must be correct. So first get your data right. But I think what we all know really carries the biggest weight in changing minds is the story, the visual story. And so more and more UN and other humanitarian bodies are resorting to videos, to YouTube, to TikTok, to social media, to try to tell the story of the individual, because that's what we respond to. I was at a meeting the other day. It was a UN principles meeting. And we were talking uh, in, in the sort of big terms that the UN talks about. But one person said the body of a of a, an eight-year-old child was found outside a refugee camp in, in Somalia who had died of thirst. And it's then for the, you know, you can listen to all these numbers, you can listen to all of the language that we talk in the, in the UN. The part of that meeting that carried the greatest impact was the thought of a child leaving the camp, a refugee camp, to find water and dying of thirst. We have to do more of that. But we also have to, we have to work at the community level, but we also have to work at the political level because in the end you have, who's going to change this? It's got to be the senior government officials and and politicians. And some politicians have done their, their best to do the reverse. They've been jingoistic, they've been populist, they've, they've, they've lied, frankly lied, about the, the situation. One of the myths, for example, is that Refugees are an economic burden. They are not. We have a lot of research that shows that refugees, when given the right to work, will actually improve the GDP of the country in which they are. And they bring all sorts of richness to that country culturally as well. But people, of course, always insist on the economic argument. But essentially, when they are given access to work legally, they actually bring considerable benefits to the country. And I think that's one of those myths that that we need to, to deal with in order to bring the hearts and minds as well. But, but basically, frankly, it's about communications. The videos, the films, the, the, the visual image is what actually brings the change. 
it's interesting, isn't it? You've got to almost double, redouble your efforts, Jillian, to deal with the myths and biases that that put up put up the barriers. Not not a, not an easy one. And you know, hearts and mind stuff is so much harder than. I mean, I'm I'm saying this to a lawyer, but to deal with it, you know, with pure pure facts and pure facts and a legal argument. Jillian, have you seen interesting models of how this tension between domestic versus global efforts has been? Has been reconciled. For example, the one that comes to my mind, and I and I wanted to ask you this question is, you know, when Angela Merkel in Germany, you know, responded to the crisis at that time and faced a lot of criticism in terms of Germany's response to uh, to how she dealt with the issue. I mean, what has that made you think, Jillian? Is that the model countries should should adopt? Well, I think that Angela Merkel took a huge risk. And I think Germany now hosts 1.3 million refugees and is one of the major refugee countries in the world, along obviously with Turkey, with Bangladesh, with Jordan, with parts of, of, of Africa. She took a huge risk and she suffered politically as a consequence. But nonetheless, now that she's left the political arena, the enormity of what she did and the importance of what she did just is a very sound model for others that other politicians can also take the rather than succumb to the lowest common denominator of nationalist, populist, jingoistic rhetoric, where they can possibly pick up some votes in a marginal seat. She showed the courage of these fundamental principles and she brought the German people with her for the most part. Not everybody by any, by any means, but for the most part, she survived politically. And uh, I, I think that that generosity in Germany will continue and I think she is a shining light globally. But what she did was to demonstrate the very point that we're making at the UN Refugee Agency. And that is, rather than being driven by the need to bring across those votes, she took an ethical position that Germany must share its wealth and its prosperity with other parts of the world. And she's done that. So it is a model that we think is actually a critical one. But very few are as brave as she is. We have the United States, for example, with a with a new, a relatively new president who's who's adopting many of the same ideals. The United States has taken about 175,000 Afghans and Syrians in the last year and is significantly increasing its refugee intake. Canada, a global leader for years, are unwavering other parts of Europe, of course. So I think we have models, but they are not. It's not enough. It, it, we tend to be dealing with the same 20 or so countries all the time uh, that are providing answers, but the rest of the international community is largely staying out of it. And I, I think that one of the challenges is to expand that model so that politicians are empowered to take the moral and, and humanitarian road rather than that very narrow internal road uh, where they appeal to a few uh, constituents. Yeah, yeah. That brings me, Gillian, onto a question that I that is at the heart of this podcast and and obviously at the heart of our conversation is how do you personally influence people, particular leaders like Angela Merkel? I'm I'm just sticking with that example to kind of take that model or move towards that model. So at the heart of that, Gillian, must be the need to have difficult and courageous. You talked about courage in the context of what Angela Merkel did to have courageous conversations. And I know, Gillian, in your role, you're out there often talking to these leaders with very entrenched nationalism. 
how do you personally, and I'm not talking about the role of the institution here, but you personally, Jillian, how do you break through these barriers and come out of the other side, really? Well, it can be very difficult. You know, I do need to speak to ministers or ambassadors to persuade them. And I can be met with absolute intransigence and not telling the truth. And that's very discouraging because you're dealing, you're, you're really dealing with a brick wall. You, you, it's very, very hard to get through. I think it's critical to have as courteous a relationship as you can, to try to understand the perspective of the other country. A very worrying issue, for example, at the moment is the treatment of the Uyghurs and their imprisonment and a denial by some countries that this is even a problem and denying that they are entitled to to international protection. It's a very, very difficult issue. But I think one has to, in any good negotiation or advocacy, to understand what the genuine concerns of the other side are. And I think the UN generally and UNHCR in particular, we do have to be prepared to understand what's the perception in the UK with their Rwanda deal. What's driving this? Why do some countries keep the Uyghurs in prison for years without trial? What are their purposes? So I think you've always got to put yourself in the position of the other, the other, the, the person you're trying to persuade. But sometimes that can be very difficult. And so at a personal level, you know, you can come away from a meeting in sort of despair, really, that you feel you haven't, you haven't achieved anything and you've been misled. But I do believe that you have to keep on talking, even with the most intransigent of, of uh, leaders, uh, so that they go away, at least with a question in their mind as to whether they've really got this right and whether there's another way of dealing with it. People are very often inclined to say, people like me, we're, we're just naive idealists with no idea of the real world, etc. You get that a lot. But I personally, I'd much rather be seen as a na- naive idealist than, than, uh, than somebody who's simply denying the realities and, and embarking on policies that are absolutely inhumane and appalling uh, policies. So, uh, look, I think, I think all you can do is keep talking. I think we have to use the media more effectively. And perhaps we do. We have to be cleverer at, at how we uh, reach out. But the truth is, in many, many of the areas that we work in in the UN Refugee Agency, for example, stateless people, we have to have outcomes. Uh, we have to achieve change. And we have to be focused on those solutions and outcomes, not just on endlessly mopping up the mess and endlessly asking for money. We have to be able to show that we've got outcomes. So I am personally trying to see if we can get some better outcomes. But dealing with it personally is not easy, but of course it's always good to go home and (laughs) have family and friends to talk to. So it can be difficult sometimes. You wonder what on earth you're achieving. And then then suddenly you find that that you have achieved something in a small way somewhere, and that sort of keeps you going. No, absolutely, Gillian, because I think I don't want to use the word failure because you know you're playing such a long game. But there must be moments, like you said, you know, where you're full of despair and you and you wonder whether you're even moving the needle a tiny bit. That's right. You know, I mean, you need a certain kind of resilience, Chilean, don't you, to 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 do this. So what what keeps you going? You know, when you're in the thick of well, I think I think to a, up to a point, it's my legal background. Yeah, right. You know, I really believe in the rule of law even though it sometimes gets things wrong and can be doesn't always produce justice. Right. 
I honestly believe that that we can only resolve many of the, of the global problems by democratic creation of law and abiding by the rule of law, independence of judges, the separation of powers, of course, prohibitions on corruption, systems that manage and create institutions that have a sustainability, and you can then, you know, achieve a just outcome. So. I know that many people just don't have any faith in the law at all and and will be critical of me as a lawyer. But I think my belief in the power of the rule of law, the effectiveness of the rule of law does help me a lot. So I, I really I do sort of reach back to that eventually. But also we're backed by the need to respect the rule of law by the data, by the information. We are in a horrifying situation at the moment. I grew up, I was born in, in London in 1945 at the end of the Second World War. To see the war in Ukraine develop and the horror, ten, more than 10 million people crossing borders to seek safety and you know, 8, 10 million displaced within the country itself and the situation arguably worsening and with, with ripple effects throughout the world. I can hardly believe that we've had the United Nations Charter and intended, of course, to end these wars. We're still not able to do it. So the reach of the rule of law is limited. But I still believe that we need, we need a new world order. Uh, we cannot have veto countries like Russia undermining the entire system. So we need to think big. We need to think about how we can reform the global governance and really reinstate the rule of law. But I think those things sustain me a bit because I really do think that they are the way forward. But the other is a sort of humanitarian instinct. You cannot see people suffer the way they do. The horrors of the civil war in, in, in Mozambique, 850,000 people burnt out of their villages, raped and, and children, macheted to death or, or deliberately having their, their organs slashed at. Uh, I mean, the, the horror of it. And that's just a six-hour plane trip from Mobuto to Paris. <laughs> We we have to reinforce this this notion of the interconnectedness. But how one deals with this, I think, is is very individual. One's individual resilience uh, it probably does count. Chilin, do you ever wonder? I no, I get I get the importance and the and the anchor of your legal you know legal background and your commitment to the rule of law. But do you ever wonder? Has there been anything particularly in your life when you look back that has made you so determined about? you know, wanting to solve the, the refugee crisis. Is there something that, that takes you back, you know, many steps back? What is it in it? Because there's a, there's a deep conviction there, which to me, listening to you, feels like it's beyond your commitment to being a successful international lawyer. Well, I think, uh, you know, when one is a little introspective, I, I, I think you always go back to your parents. But my, my, um, my father was... Um, in the British Army, a tank commander and a major, and my mother was with the Royal Navy, the the what's called the Wrens, the the the, the women's Royal Navy, um, and she, I think, was involved in one of those plotting rooms, you know, where they move the boats, the submarines around. But they were very young, and they they ended the war. They married at, at twenty one, had me at twenty two. They felt that that war, they to which they'd contributed, along with millions of others that they wanted to see a new world. So I was always impressed by my parents that they, they had very strong sort of basic human rights 
interests, particularly non-discrimination, racial racial and religious discrimination, they talked about quite a bit. But for them also, they, they were young and they wanted a new world and they expected that having, quote, won the war, that world will be a different place. And then they moved to Australia in 1958. I was then 12, nearly 13. And something that had a big impact on me was we came by ship from England to Australia. And one of the places we stopped in was um, in Aden, in Yemen. And as a 12-year-old, I saw how these people lived. I mean, I'd been brought up in a sort of middle-class environment in a terrace house in North London, educated at the local convent. And here I was seeing children with limbs distorted so they could be better beggars living in caves. And of course, ironically, all these years later, the, the war, the civil war or the, in, in Yemen, really a bit of a proxy war for other countries, the level of starvation, brutality and inhumanity continues. But I think when I was looking back to when I was 12, that had a big impact on me when I saw that. And also how I saw women treated. I've never seen women treated like that. I had never seen women treated like that before. And I, uh, that, that I've never forgotten. Women brutally, I saw them with my own eyes, women attacked on the streets, with, covered in, of course, the, the full habit. So uh, I think maybe you know if you if you want to, if you have time to talk to a psychologist, yeah, no, it probably goes yeah. back to that. No, I often wonder because you're such a successful international lawyer, Gillian. But I often wonder. I'm not sure it's just that that has probably no, yeah, no, no, no. It's, it's probably more. Yeah, than that. it's it, there must be something in your life experience that has that has kind of strengthened your resolve to do what what you're doing. What kind of conversations did you have at home when you were growing up, Gillian? Well, I, I, I was thinking about that actually in another context, but you see, both my parents were in the war. So as we grew up at the dinner table with my family in London, there was often talk about war and human rights. Uh, my uncle had been in Changi as a prisoner of war and then up on the Burma Railroad and of course survived it. My grandfather had been, my, both my grandfathers had fought in the First World War, but survived, but suffered mustard gas. And my great-grandfather, I believe, had been in, um, in, uh, in the war in, in, in South Africa, in the Boer War. So it's not, it, when you talk about the conversations around the dinner table, there was a lot of war, I'm afraid. And that's why I think they felt after the Second World War that this was a new world. And so you you sort of had both the negative side of the conversation and the positive side that that was all done. That was in the past. This was a new world. And we had the UN Charter. We had a um, growing interest in, in the individual human rights and a sense that the world could now was on an upward trajectory. That was the optimism of the, of the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, 80s. But then we've seen the horror of other wars, obviously Vietnam, the 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 Middle East, uh, uh, Palestine. Um, we've just seen things actually sort of continue to to, uh, to but it's always been at a lo- wars have been very civil wars, very local. But now here we are back to uh, Ukraine, where we're looking at where the conversations wouldn't have been much different uh, in 1945 as they are now. You know, shells, bombing, tanks, moving uh, supply lines, fuel dumps. It's 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 all the same conversation. Gillian, thank you so much for giving us an insight into, into your life. And I'm sorry to have taken you back to your childhood. 
But, you know, I just, because we've spoken so many times before, I've always felt that strong sense of conviction, which is much more than you being a very successful professional lawyer. So I just wanted our, our listeners to, to be able to experience that too. Jillian, I wanted to pick up on something that you said. You talked about the hope in the 1940s, particularly around the, the new institutions that were being created in the aftermath of the war and the United Nations, particularly Jillian. I just wanted to ask you, and this is a difficult one because I am a student of international relations, Jillian, so grew up with huge faith in multilateralism. And then I hear all this criticism about the UN it, and it makes my heart sink. And, and we know, both of us know, Jillian, the UN has faced its own criticism and continues to around its own efficacy, particularly at time of funding shortfalls, etc. What does that make you think? How do you respond to this criticism? What would you like to understand and know? Well, I think what I would like the wider uh, international community to understand is that the United Nations is a creation of sovereign nations. So it can only do what states allow us to do. That is a, a very significant element because the United Nations gives the states through the UN, gives the UN Ref Refugee Agency certain powers and authorities and responsibilities. But people seem to think that the UN is a sort of completely autonomous body that is failing to meet, of course, the very high expectations of the United Nations. So I don't want to make excuses for the UN, but I do think that uh, with the vetoed power, for example, in the Security Council is a huge impediment uh, to the UN achieving its primary objectives. But that having been said, I think the UN uh, is still a very powerful and effective body. And we've seen this recently with the role of the Secretary General in getting one humanitarian corridors for, for civilians in, in Ukraine but also in achieving uh, with Turkey and the, and the two protagonists, Russia and, and uh, of course, Ukraine, uh, achieving the grain shipments. Now, they're small things, but across the, across the whole UN system, so much really good work is done, whether it's, whether it's um, humanitarian or in the trade area, intellectual property protection, law of the sea, uh, so many areas in which the UN has proved to be an extraordinarily effective organization. But we must accept criticism and indeed welcome it where we've been less efficient than we should be. There are criticisms of uh, Monosco in, um, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo at the moment uh, with calls uh, for, for the UN peacekeeping body to, to be withdrawn, and it probably will be withdrawn. So, uh, yes, the criticisms. Yes, we haven't always been able to respond as we want to. But I think the UN uh, as a whole ha has been a remarkable achievement of the 20th century and now the 21st. Do you find it personally challenging, Jillian, where, you know, you have deep faith in the power of the institution and what it was set up to do? And yet it, with time, with the passage of time, you know, it, it, it's, there's a positive as a, and, and a not so positive sort of, you know, side to it in terms of how it's being reflected upon. Does that, do you find that personally challenging? Oh well, it is because I've I've always been such a strong supporter of the of the charter, and so I, I, of course it it is difficult, and so I but I have to be careful not to be sort of endlessly supporting the UN against against some criticisms because some criticisms are justified, and and we like any any institution and any any group, but 
uh, in the humanitarian area, we've got huge challenges. We don't always meet those challenges. Sometimes we take our eye off the ball in some issues within the UN system, and we need to rethink what we're doing and uh, and and regear. But we've been successful because the because of the multilateral or the commitment to multilateralism, but, but both by member states, which we have, undeniably we have that support. But we also increasingly have the support from the general public and from the private sector and from the business community. So I think that's a very big positive, providing positive potential for the future. I'll quickly pick up on that point, Gillian, because I did want to ask you, you mentioned it earlier as well, about the role of private sector, the role of business. I mean, how do you sort of, how do you reflect upon that? Particularly sometimes there's there's criticism, isn't there, that business community could do more particularly those whose bottom line is positively affected by their presence in some of the countries which need help, you know, are they doing enough? What's your response to that, Chilean? Is the business community doing enough? Could they do more? Well, I think there's no doubt at all that the the international uh, business community, the big corporations, as well as the medium and small, can all do a great deal more. But I can say that we're on an upward trajectory. Partly young people in in the big companies, question their ethics, question what the contribution they make to the communities in which they make significant profits. Um, so I think we, we're seeing a definite improvement. But there are others that, that that sicken us all, really, when you see the big oil and gas companies making uh, huge windfall profits from the Ukraine war. Uh, you'll be aware that the Secretary General is saying these profits should be taxed. Of course, one doesn't want to force this but in the end, they ought to pay taxes on these windfall profits. But beyond the, this phenomenon of the, of the Ukraine war and the impact on, on food and, and fuel prices, I think we, we are really working hard at an advocacy level with the private sector to ensure that they, they do contribute more significantly than, than they have done. So it brings me to my sort of almost closing question uh, in this conversation, Gillian. What are some of the changes that, you know, we really we really need to see happen? And what more importantly, what conversations do we need to be having more of in order to drive some of that change? I mean, conversations must be such a big instrument of, of driving change for you. How do you see that, Chilean, play out as you, as you look to the future? Well, I, I think the conversations are very important. And, and the rise of the podcast, which, which this is, is important because people people have many many people are listening to the podcast because they can learn from them i think that's a very important tool but i think we also need to engage more with the with the people who can achieve change uh, we won't achieve change if we don't bring politicians ministers senior government officials and as as we've said the private sector with us and so i think we need more more accountability we, have, we need to hold our politicians to account more than we do. In democracies, of course, that Uganda can do that. But un- unfortunately, to a very high degree, those elections are run on the basis of economic, of economic arguments. But we need to ensure that our politicians are held accountable for the humanitarian impact of what they do. And I think we need those conversations more. I think we also need a conversation about uh, UN reform and about the impacts the the other the other institutional players globally, um, the big foundations that provide support, bring some of these together to achieve a genuine reform, so that countries cannot hide behind national sovereignty 
when they bring misery to their own people and then refuse to to support those people. And that's an element, of course, of the work that we're so concerned about at the moment, the approximately 70, nearly 70 million people displaced in their own countries. These are citizens of those countries and governments have a responsibility to look after them, uh, but they don't always accept that responsibility. So I think we have to have global conversations about, about responsibility for human beings uh, with less emphasis on principles of national sovereignty. But again, that, that, that opinion of mine will, will, can raise, raise the hackles of governments because they are always concerned to protect their national sovereignty first and foremost. Yeah, absolutely. Gillian, just as, a, just as a bit of a closing question here from me, and I always wonder how people like you respond to a question like this. We started with those staggering statistics of 100 million, and we talked about how much we all need to collectively do to, to deal with and respond to this crisis. Do you often wonder what would it look like and feel like if things were good in your world? <laughs> you know, what does that make you think, Gillian? Well, I, I, I think I, the world would be one where there's much more respect for the individual, intolerance for the poverty and discrimination and inhumanity. I think we'd see a world where there's much more respect for diversity, for the bit different things that we all bring to the, the communities and a much greater sense of individual responsibility for the world that we live in. So I can see a world of, of sunshine and butterflies and, and respect. <laughs> and, and we do see it in many contexts. You know, I have the privilege of living in a, in a remarkable country like Switzerland, where you've got parks and gardens for children, we've got high education, good healthcare. You, you start to see what the world could achieve but we achieve it only in some very particular countries. No, thank you, Gillian. Gillian, any closing thoughts and um, sort of uh, for our listeners, what, what would you like to leave us with? Huge respect and thank you to you for the work that you're doing relentlessly is a word really driving what clearly is something that you've been carrying from your childhood, you know, your deep conviction to solve this incredibly complex, complex challenge in the world, Gillian. What would you like to leave us with? Well, uh, firstly, to, to thank you for, for your, your leadership on, on this, but to thank all those who choose to listen to this podcast to say, perhaps speak up more for refugees. Use your individual power to speak up for people in utter despair. And, and these very often are people forcibly displaced or, or refugees. So I think we have to urge listeners to 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 grasp the opportunities they have as individuals and and to speak up so that, 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 that those are my last thoughts thank you very much indeed incredible insights there from Gillian I really really enjoyed that conversation and learned so much here at the big sparkcast we are really focused on purpose-driven conversations and how they play out on some of the big issues like these. And Gillian is a true master of these conversations. As a senior leader in the United Nations and on a topic as polarizing as this one, Gillian is in daily conversations across the globe. 
and it must not be an easy task when you think about who she must talk to. But what Chilean shows us in this conversation is how, to really affect change in the world, you have to be driven by curiosity. You have to see the world through other people's eyes. You have to have the courage to take risks. And most of all, you need to have a very strong sense of purpose at your core. A very, very special thank you to Gillian um, for taking the time to talk to me, to talk to all of us today. And thank you to all of you out there for listening. If you like this episode, please don't forget to give us a review and share what topic would you like us to explore next. Really look forward to hearing from all of you. See you all again very soon.